so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. You're listening to the ERLC podcast. Dude, I'm I'm here for this. I feel I feel like I'm watching Stick Stickly right now. Anybody remember that? <laughs> I just I can't get over the fact nothing has changed. It's just the top of Brent's head. He's <laughs> acting like an old man. <laughs> Nothing is. Why? Changed. What's wrong? What's wrong with the mic placement? What's wrong with the mic placement? It's no. It's it's here. It is Leatherwood. Hello and welcome back to this week's episode of the ERLC podcast, where every week we're talking about our work here at the ERLC and focusing on what Christians need to know about the things going on in the world. I'm Josh Wester, and with me on the podcast, as always, is my co-host, Brent Leatherwood. Hey, y'all. It's a big day. It's a big day, and that's what I was looking for, that setup. Thank you so much, because we are so excited to welcome, and you can't see it, but there's literally a stuffed animal welcoming Lindsay Nicolay back to the podcast. Lindsay, welcome back. Hello, everybody. Uh... Hello from Sleepless in Seattle. Actually, it's Sleepless in Franklin or Williamson County because I'm so sleep deprived, but I'm so glad to be back. But Megan and Julie held down the fort so well that I'm thinking of just taking regular month long breaks and they can just come back in and do their thing. It's too bad that Megan's not going to chime in here. (laughs) Right. She doesn't seem excited about it on via FaceTime. (laughs) That's right. But Lindsay, welcome back. We are glad to have you. And, um, you know, sorry to hear that you're sleep deprived, but it's just good to see your face. Even for, yeah, I mean, most most people don't come back from vacation sleep deprived. Oh, I forgot about vacation. Oh man, yes, I am enjoying my vacation actually. And one thing I thought I would try on this vacation is not sleeping. That's right. I don't think so I'll just, ever take a vacation like it again. But so to remind our listeners, uh, they they may recall that. About what, five five weeks ago, four weeks um, ago, four weeks ago. Sorry, uh, yeah, you wouldn't know because you haven't checked on me, Brent. Okay. Jo- my other co-host has, but yeah, not so you. So we'll, we'll we'll make sure that that uh, doesn't make the final edit. But <laughs> anyways, uh, so four weeks ago, uh, as as Lindsay was bringing a new life into this world, uh, Josh. Josh said that she was on on vacation, and he has not lived that down with the women who are on our staff, and uh, and I'm not going to let him forget it either, because it was a great moment in broadcasting history. Right. And I think that the women who are not on our staff who are listening to this should send him hate mail. So just stay tuned, and we'll drop his, his address or his email address in the show notes. <laughs> Just kidding. Man. Well, it would add to the substantial hate mail that already comes in. Oh, Josh. Everybody loves you. Nobody hates you. That's really nice. That's a really sweet thing to say. (laughs) Well, Lindsay, we're glad that you're back. Uh, Vacation or otherwise, it is good to see your face. And so now you get to tell us what the ERLC has been talking about this week. But before you jump into that, I'll just throw out there for people. Lindsay, because she loves our podcast audience so much, decided to come back to the podcast before she's actually done with her maternity leave. She's got several more weeks of being out of the out of the office and she has graciously agreed to come back and and to join us, rejoin us on the podcast. So Lindsay, with that set up, tell us what the ERLC's been talking about this week. Well, I would just like to thank Megan and Julie for not working me out of a job. I'm really just trying to maintain job security here. <laughs> no, it's good to be back. I'm going to pretend like I know what I'm talking about because I am in the midst of a sleepless haze. Josh is maintaining the content calendar for me while I'm out. So I'm going to highlight some pieces and I'm uh, going to lean on Josh and Brent to comment on them a little bit more than usual. So you guys should enjoy this, Josh and Brent, because I'm actually going to want to, you to talk more and welcome it instead of give you a hard time for it. <laughs> I feel honored to be invited into the ERLC content section. 
So the first piece we wanted to highlight was actually a piece, an important piece that went out on Saturday because the Supreme Court struck down California's ban on indoor worship. So our our policy staff out of D.C. wrote about this important development, and I'm just going to read you a little bit from the opening paragraph to give you a taste of what it's about. So, So on Friday night, February 5th, the Supreme Court responded to California's ban on all indoor religious gatherings by granting injunctive relief to the churches challenging the overburdensome pandemic restrictions. The court's 6-3 order overturned the ban, replacing it with a 25% capacity limit on indoor worship. However, litigation will continue on the state's ban on singing and chanting as the justices were split on that particular policy. So uh, Josh or Brent, go ahead and tell us a little bit about why this is so important. Right. Well, the reason this is so important is because, frankly, California was an outlier in terms of the way it was treating churches uh, and treating them so harshly uh, as compared to the other 49 uh, states in in the U.S. And not only that, the way that they were working with churches was, I mean, just really confusing. We, we've talked to a number of pastors out there who it, it seems like week to week, uh, the guidance that the California state government was giving churches was, was changing. And in many cases, the, the hurdles were being raised even higher to seemingly prevent churches from worshiping. And so uh, the court, some of our listeners may remember the ERLC, we uh, signed on to an amicus brief in an important case in New York back in the fall. Uh, as a matter of fact, it came out, help me, Josh, was it like right around Thanksgiving, right before Thanksgiving? I know that's basically the yeah, right timeline. It, it was right. It was right in there. And they sent a very strong signal uh, to state governments that you needed to, A, treat churches in a manner uh, that is consistent with the way you are treating other similarly situated spaces. And not only that, uh, you must do so in a way that respects the First Amendment rights of churches and houses of worship. And the court basically has found that California is just not doing that. Uh, So this was important. At the end of the day, the, the thing that we have all wanted which is Christians being able to gather again in a, 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 a manner that is respectful of all the, the latest uh, science that we know about the coronavirus spreading. That has been lifted. Uh, in California right now, uh, they, they will be able to uh, gather at a 25% capacity, and we expect uh, here soon uh, that California will release new guidance based on this Supreme Court decision. Brent, that's a really good rundown of what happened. Uh, I know a lot of people might hear that 25% number and think, oh man, that's not really, that's really not a win. Or they might hear they're still not allowed to sing or chant. But basically, I mean, the Supreme Court in their ruling uh, Friday night, the, you know, it's a very splintered ruling, but they sent very clear signals that California needs to figure out how to remedy this discrepancy, this this mistreatment of churches and houses of worship, and to to ensure that if anyone is welcome to sing in any room where people are gathered in California, that churches and houses of worship are too. We are, you know, this was just a, a first step in this, and we are really confident that very soon we'll see California brought up to par with what is uh, what is happening in most other states. Thanks for that, guys. That's definitely an encouraging development um, and something that we should be encouraged that uh, the ERLC is involved in as well. So next up, we have a couple of pieces that are appropriate for Black History Month this February. And I told um, this next author that I was going to give him a hard time on the podcast. So Alex Ward, who's one of our coworkers, wrote a piece about Ruby Bridges. And I tried to get him to write a piece back in November during the anniversary of when this all happened. But for some reason, it just kept getting delayed and delayed. But it's the perfect timing right now uh, for Black History Month. So he writes about the courage of Ruby Bridges and her family. And he talks about how, from his article, this is what he talks about. He says, the story of Ruby Bridges is not just the story of her courage, though it is that, but also the courage of her family and community as they fought for equal protection and justice. And really what is 
shocking about this is that it wasn't that long ago where this little girl walked into this school and and you can see an image painted by Norman Rockwell that celebrates this and memorializes this but as Alex says there's there is just hate speech written on the back of the wall there's tomatoes that people have thrown that have splattered against the back of the wall and here's this brave little girl being escorted into this class and and uh, Alex says in this article People wouldn't even be in the classroom with her except for um, one teacher. And so she was left in a classroom by herself with only her teacher each day at school. I just, you just think of a little kid, a little girl made in God's image, bearing up under this weight, this mother who helped her daughter lead the way in this, bearing up under this weight, because I would have wanted to go after all of those people who left my daughter alone in that classroom. <laughs> um, and just how. God used them to pave the way forward for desegregation. And as Alex says, it's not done perfectly um, in many places, but still it's a start. And we can thank Ruby and her family and her community for the courage that they demonstrated in the midst of the civil rights movement. Hey, Lindsay, I got to say that, you know, maybe Alex does deserve a really hard time, but the truth is that I got to read this article and he does a great job of telling the story of Ruby Bridges. And as I hesitate to say this, but just to put it out there, as the father of a black daughter, when I think about the fact that this this happened, this was not 100 years ago. It was barely 50 years ago that this took place. The courage of this little girl to defy an angry society, some of her neighbors, the people that live in her community, who stood against her just having the right to be educated in a space that people wanted to claim belonged to white people and not others. Her courage is remarkable. And I can't imagine facing something like that today. Thank God that that's not where we are. And so if you don't know anything about Ruby Bridges, if you're not familiar with the story, uh, Alex's piece is really excellent. It's not very long. It's linked in our show notes. I would really encourage you to check it out. And I'm going to say that a couple more times because the other pieces that Lindsay's going to highlight are, are equally worthy of your time and attention. Which is a good segue into the next piece by Gunnar Gunderson, which uh, Josh was raving about. Our friend Jen Kintner helped us uh, get this piece. And the title of this piece is, He Looks Like Me, Demonstrating the Possibility of Belonging. And what Gunner talks about here is representation. So he opens it up by saying, uh, in quotes, Daddy, he looks like me. My young black son pointed to the only black basketball player on the court that night at my overwhelmingly white seminary. Even at a young age, he immediately felt represented. And he goes on to explain that representation can describe either the way different kinds of people are portrayed or the presence of someone who represents something about us. In our society, it is easy for this to be politicized and for it to be um, contentious and for it to be written off and for different people in different tribes to try to protect their tribe. Um, but Gunner points out what's really important is the scriptural basis for this. So he says, on the surface, it's easy to claim that biblical impartiality should make us blind to color, culture, and class. And if we're consistent, gender and age too. But scripture tells a different story, a story filled with eye-opening concern for every kind of person. And so it's it's not just about, like he said, one color or class or gender or age. It's about all of us feeling represented, all of us feeling the weight of the fact that we are worthy of being included because we are made in God's image and because we bear his stamp, his divine stamp of approval. Um, and because we should be treated with dignity and we should be embraced regardless of our differences. And in fact, we should take time to get to know other people in the midst of their differences, which is very easy for me to sit here and say, and it's harder to live out um, in a practical in a practical way. But I, I figure Brent or Josh might want to speak to this, but this is just such an important article. It's a longer article, but I would encourage you to check it out on ERLC.com and find the time to be able to read it, even break it up into a couple of segments to read throughout the day. It's just so good, and it applies to all of us. Yeah, Josh has been hyping this uh, this piece for a while, and I have to say, it, it absolutely uh, lives up to the hype. 
And one of the things that I would say, just, I mean, Lindsay, you did a, a great job just kind of running through it and summarizing it. One thing I would highlight to just make it appeal uh, to maybe some of our audience is he's just got a little line tucked in here that says, even well-meaning Christian communities are not immune to eternalized attitudes of racial superiority and inferiority. The implications are far-reaching if we are willing to search our souls. And I just thought that was a good reminder how this work should be carried out. And if you're thinking, oh, no, he's he's just, you know, he's playing on things like, um, I don't know, white guilt or just other sentiments like that, I would just point you uh, back to Scripture um, because his words there reminded me immediately of uh, Philippians 2.3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. And we need to have that humble approach uh, as we work to uh, achieve racial unity. That was just so well said. The reference there to Philippians is exactly the right sentiment. As I was thinking about this piece, it is among the very best pieces I think that we've ever published. And one of the reasons it is, is because it's so careful to walk us through scripture and show us uh, the concepts that Gunnar is talking about in this piece and about the idea of representation. And one of the things we're talking about, we talk about these things like diversity and we talk about the, the kingdom of God and talking about the family of God, what we're saying is that God created humanity to be something special. Human beings are, are what God loves, and he placed his image on us, in us. He stamped us with his image, and every person who bears the image of God matters, which means that every person matters. And in this piece, Gunnar does such an incredible job of showing us that, of showing us how how the wonder and glory of God is reflected in the panorama that is the global body of Christ, and that is just the makeup of human beings that span the whole globe. So I could not commend this more strongly. I would really encourage you to check it out. And Brent, I'm glad that you brought up what you did, uh, because just an encouragement to our audience, again, that this is not meant to induce guilt. This is not meant to dunk on anyone type of person or class of people, we're all going to do this imperfectly. This is meant to stir up our hearts and our affections for and our minds to what uh, God's Word teaches and to give us a longing for that more perfect city that we're heading toward where all of this is going to be done perfectly and everybody's going to be treated with the dignity that they deserve. And I just wanted to highlight as well that he, he gives examples in here, asks some questions about various groups, like if we don't pursue that family with special needs or if the elderly have no voice in our church or if a multi-ethnic group is led by a mono-ethnic leadership. So he talks about all of these different types of groups and how we can just be aware of those who are in our community and in our churches, how we can reach out to them. And again, um, this isn't going to be done perfectly. It's not going to look like like what it's going to look like in heaven quite yet, but we can make strides toward that and have hearts that are shaped increasingly toward that. And then our final piece is we're highlighting global persecution, uh, which is something that we we should care about, but it's easy to be out of sight, out of mind. But, but it's also easier than ever to be aware of what's happening because we do live in such a connected age. So our colleague Chelsea Patterson-Sobolik has written a piece about how the Chinese Communist Party is persecuting Uyghur women. Now, we've talked about this a bunch. We have a bunch of resources on our site about these Uyghur women, these Uyghur Muslims in China who are being put in these horrible internment camps. And recently, a lady who spent time there was interviewed for a BBC article. The article describes vivid physical and sexual violence, so you need to be aware of that. But it is really terrible to read about what these people are undergoing. And you know what? It doesn't matter the fact that they are a Muslim group. No group should be persecuted regardless of who they are. No group should be treated like this, regardless of who they are. And Christians should be the first to stand up for the proper treatment of all people around the globe. We have been trying to, for more than a year now, draw attention to these horrific human rights abuses taking place in China. They are systematically persecuting a religious minority group. And just because these people 
are not Christians because they're Muslims, that, that doesn't in any way diminish our concern about the nature of these abuses, about the value of these people. And so that's kind of the theme that we're talking about today. When we're addressing these concerns about human dignity, and we're talking about China, who is among the very worst human rights abusers on the planet, uh, this is something that the ERLC and our advocacy and in all of the work that we do, we are focused on what we we have been using the phrase countering China morally. And that's that's what we're trying to do is uh, encourage the United States government and to see the international community stand against these abuses. And you might be thinking, like me, what can I do about this? And Thankfully, there are organizations like the ERLC and other places that are doing some work on behalf of those who are persecuted globally. But you can start with being educated, and we have we have resources on our site that will educate you. You can start by praying. You can start by discussing these things among your church family. You can discuss them among your family at home. You can teach your children about this and about um, the importance of treating people well and fairly and with the dignity that they deserve. So you can take small steps. And and in the Lord's kingdom, you know, the mustard seed grows <laughs> into the kingdom. And so small steps, he blesses. Like my one of my favorite Gaither songs says, a little is big when God is in it. And that's the truth. He will use those small steps and he will bless them. So Josh and Brent, um, I don't know if you really were excited that I was back today. And I do think what Julie was doing was really cool. But that is your show rundown. I'm excited that I was able to put in I'm a show rundown. That's the name of the document. <laughs> It's over. I'm taking over the show today. <laughs> yeah, if we're if you're not excited, I'm back. Well, I've got news for you. I've cut the su- entire second half of the show. I cut all of it. I cut it all because you know what? Forget y'all. No, just kidding. Welcome um, to the Lindsay Nicolay podcast. <laughs> oh, um, it was good to to be back with y'all in this capacity. I'm excited. I was able to put sentences together that I hope make sense to our audience. And I look forward to giving y'all a hard time, especially you, Brent, as we run through the culture content and then into the lunchroom. But that is your look at what's happening on ERLC.com. Hey, Lindsay, thanks for that. Good to have you back. Uh, We definitely, definitely missed you. I want to go ahead and say, one, thanks for the Gaither reference there at the end of your section. And then also, it's little as much when God is in it, not little as big. Is that correct? Real-time fact check from another. I'm messing up all kinds of things. Show rundown, little is much, little is big. (laughs) Maternity brain. (laughs) Little is big when God is in it. As a fellow Uh, Gaither fan and, you know, lifelong Southern gospel listener. Yes, you know. Speaking of big things, Brent, tell us what's going on in the world of culture this week. That's right. So, uh, Lindsay, I will say, let me add to what Josh said. We are genuinely excited that you are back. That was moving, Brent. (laughs) The intonation of your voice really convinced me. (laughs) We are so excited you are back. It's like Phillip's goodbye. Bye. Didn't y'all give him a hard time about that when he hangs up the phone? (laughs) Yes. Shout out to Philip Bethencourt out there who, uh, when he ended every phone conversation, it was like, bye. Bye. As if... As if you had just wasted 10 minutes of his time, right? (laughs) Like my my soul regrets this time I just spent on the phone. Exactly. Exactly. Don't make me feel that way, Brent. Don't make me feel that way. All right. Well, we appreciate our our loyal listeners down in in College Station, Texas. Okay. All right. So for the culture section this week, we begin with news from Capitol Hill, where the second impeachment trial of Donald Trump is ongoing. From the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, this uh, report, I think, kind of summarized everything that's happened in the first few days uh, of this trial. Quote, the footage shown at trial, much of it never before seen, has included video of the mob smashing into the building, distraught members of Congress receiving comfort, rioters engaging in hand-to-hand combat with police, and audio of Capitol Police officers pleading for backup. It underscored how close the rioters came to the nation's leaders, shifting the focus of the trial from an academic debate about the Constitution to a raw retelling of the January 6th assault. Videos of the siege have been circulating since the day of the riot, 
but the graphic compilation shown to senators Wednesday amounted to a more complete narrative, a moment-by-moment retelling of one of the nation's most alarming days. It offered fresh details into the attackers, scenes of police heroism, and staff whispers of despair. Uh, in the immediate aftermath of uh, of the January 6th insurrection, I think we have talked about just the heroics of the Capitol Police officers, and in particular, uh, one uh, by the name of Eugene Goodman, who uh, faced down the folks who had illegally entered the Capitol and actually ended up leading them away from the U.S. Senate floor. Well, more was even revealed this week uh, with one of the videos, uh, Senator Mitt Romney was alone by himself walking down a a corridor just off of the Senate floor, and all of a sudden, Officer Goodman ran by him and warned him that uh, members of the the mob were very close to that hallway. And you can see in the video uh, Senator Romney uh, running away and back to the Senate floor for safety where he was later evacuated. At the same time that was going on, there was another security uh, camera footage that showed Vice President Mike Pence being quickly evacuated with his family uh, out the back door of the the U.S. Senate and into a safe room. I mean, some of this has just never been seen before, and it's uh, it was very riveting to to see it this week. Yeah, I would use the word harrowing to describe the footage. You know, thinking especially the Officer Goodman running past Mitt Romney, telling him to go the other direction. And then you see Mitt Romney, who is a man who is, well, I've never seen him run before, ever. You know, he's this well-put-together guy who is just very professional and statesmanlike. And in this scene, you see this officer run past him, and then Mitt Romney turn around, and what he's literally doing is running for his life. Who knows what would have happened if the mob had gotten their hands, not just on Mitt Romney, but any member of Congress. It was overwhelming. But as reported by the news outlet Politico, it appears that none of this evidence is likely to sway enough senators to vote to convict. From the report itself, the trial tests whether Trump incited the riot, Republicans said this week, not the widely acknowledged calamity that January 6th became. Quote, this is not a vote on whether what happened that day was horrifying, because it most certainly was, said Senator Marco Rubio of Florida. This is not a vote on whether the president bears any responsibility, which I've said all along. Senator Mike Rounds, a Republican from South Dakota, said the impeachment managers took a pretty polished approach, but he concluded that they're asking the Senate to provide a solution that we just don't believe we have available. As a reminder to our listeners, it takes 67 votes to convict the former president, which would require 17 Republicans to cross party lines and vote against former President Donald Trump. Based on uh, some of the quotes and the reporting that we have seen uh, after the conclusion of each of these days on the Senate floor, it it does not appear uh, that 17 Republicans will, will end up voting to convict. The House managers presenting the case finished up their oral arguments on Thursday, and the defense team representing President Trump will likely take Friday and Saturday to present their side. Sunday will then be a day for senators to ask questions and then most likely uh, a vote on the conviction question will occur on Monday. At least that's what uh, most analysts on Capitol Hill are forecasting. So this week, there was other news that I thought was interesting playing out in the backdrop uh, of this impeachment trial. There's a new project that was announced on American unity, and it comes from right here in Nashville out of Vanderbilt University, uh, but it's got some pretty big names attached to it. Uh, Many of our listeners will know of author and historian John Meacham, who has written all kinds of bestsellers as well as former Tennessee Governor Bill Haslam. And they also are joined by a Vanderbilt professor and and well-known lawyer here in Tennessee, Summer Ali. Uh, They actually penned a joint op-ed in time announcing this project. And I just, there was a little paragraph in here I thought was great. It says, unity is a little like exercise, a great idea, a noble idea, but hard and all too easy to forgo. 
Yet history tells us that America works best when just enough of us see politics as a mediation of differences rather than as total unrelenting warfare. It is not a partisan point to observe that a change in administrations offers the country an opportunity to assess anew the purposes and possibilities of our public life. And I'm just excited to see where they take this. I would expect a lot of good work and a lot of good scholarship is going to come out of this. Yeah, I mean, how exciting to think about uh, these these people coming together for this purpose at this time. And so John Meacham is, you know, this presidential historian who has brought to us uh, just this just incredible uh, works for us to remember and cherish uh, some of the some of the greatest leaders and moments in American history. Governor Haslam was a remarkable governor here in the state of Tennessee. He's the immediate past governor, and he is bringing with him, you know, all, all of his political experience to to help us chart a better path forward. And as Christians, you know, we we understand some of the stuff that ideas articulated there were just so good because we understand that politics is important, but it is a prudential exercise that it's not ultimate, but it matters and affects our lives. And so it's okay to be passionate, it's okay to be uh, driven by your political beliefs. It is not okay to allow your political beliefs to to turn you into a person that is not recognizable as a Christian. And it is not okay for politics to occupy such an important place in American life that people cannot peaceably agree, that they cannot peaceably disagree. And so uh, for the sake of our republic, for the sake of public discourse, and for the sake of hopefully impacting even our Christian witness, uh, this is a project that I'm really excited about. That's great, and that will certainly preach. All right, so turning our gaze from uh, Capitol Hill and politics to COVID. Axios reports this week that new coronavirus cases continued their sharp decline over the past week. Progress that could help the U.S. find its way out of the pandemic faster and more safely if it keeps up. Getting the virus's spread under control is the key to saving lives and reopening schools and businesses. So this past week, an average of 108,000 Americans were diagnosed with COVID-19 infections each day. That's a 24% decline from the week before. So uh, our folks will remember last week and the week before we had highlighted a 16% decline each week. This week, it's it's 24%. So, I mean, we, we are starting to make some real progress, and we're starting to consistently see uh, more people get vaccinated than actually get the disease. So that obviously helps. And in addition to that, hospitalizations were also down last week by about 8%, and deaths fell by 3%. So we, we are clearly trending in the right direction in every state, actually. Uh, that said, 108,000 uh, people on average getting the virus is still <laughs> way too many. So we we got to buckle down, but the good news is, is, is we are trending in, in the right direction. Like you said, though, we still have to be aware that we're in the midst of a pandemic, even though it is so wearing. <laughs> Listen, I am so ready to be done with this. It's gone on way longer than any of us ever thought, probably not the professionals, but the rest of us. And I see people growing weary, but... As my friend says, whose husband is a doctor and often works in the COVID unit, like not being cautious and taking precautions is the reason why her husband has to work overnight in the COVID unit. Uh, Because a bunch of us may not get sick, but we can give it to people who will get sick and who are vulnerable. So I guess much has not changed since I've been gone in the sense that I'm still harping on the be vigilant and wear your masks train for COVID. I think we can say both things at the same time, right? We can both say, hey, continue to be vigilant. We know it's wearying. We know you're exhausted with it. And then at the same time, man, like what good news? Because, you know, it was a bleak winter when we were watching, you know, more than 3,000 people die every single day. And now we are seeing the number of new infections decline and decline. We're seeing the uh, targets for vaccinations be far exceeded. And so all, all of that is just remarkably positive news. And we're seeing, uh, you know, more and more both pressure and positive movement on getting kids back into schools, which is something we talked about a few weeks ago. For so long, it was just 
is this ever going to end? Is it ever going to be over? And we're not there yet, but like we can celebrate things moving in the right direction. Well, and that's a good segue as I'm looking at Brent's notes, and I'm not going to take over Brent, into some of the best news as far as vaccines go and the incredible achievement that that is. That's right. While I was over on the Axios site, I couldn't help but but see this uh, piece as well. And I think it serves as a, a good encouragement to all of us because they are pointing out the incredible achievement represented by these four vaccines that we have. So from the report, it says developing a vaccine takes an average of 10 years. I, I didn't realize that. Uh, if it works at all. So despite years of well-funded research, there are still no vaccines for HIV or malaria as examples. But we now have multiple COVID-19 vaccines all developed in less than a year. And just as important, all four vaccine or vaccine candidates in the U.S. from Pfizer, Moderna, AstraZeneca, and Johnson & Johnson appear to prevent coronavirus deaths and to offer total or near total protection against serious illness. Some of the vaccines are more effective than others at preventing mild or asymptomatic infections, but all of them significantly exceed the FDA's threshold to be considered effective. Like this is a, A, this is just a, a, a true medical and scientific achievement for the ages, but it's also, man, if we can just push through these, these next few weeks, a couple months, and get to a place where there is the widespread ability to get vaccinated, like we potentially are going to be on the back end of this thing sooner than I think we all realize. And man, that <laughs> that is such a source of hope uh, for me right now. I'm right there with you, man. I'm ready to, I want to have a normal summer, God willing. I want to see kids back in school in the fall. I want to, you know, <laughs> I want my life back. All of us do. We all do. And we want to stop having to factor in the cost of potentially putting people in danger in order to do everyday activities. And at the same time, remembering those for whom the vaccine came a little too late, you know, who are feeling the sting of that, like friends who have lost parents and loved ones, not to negate the good news, because I know they would celebrate that too, but there's also the sting of that at the same time. That's right. And moving now to uh, our international space for the week, although maybe it should be more appropriately termed intergalactic space. Okay, that's, that's a dad joke, I realize. I, I was trying to do my <laughs> best, Dan Darling. Oh. <laughs> yeah. All right. So from the Associated <laughs> Press, a Chinese spacecraft went into orbit around Mars on Wednesday uh, on an expedition to land a rover on the surface and scout for signs of ancient life, authorities announced in a landmark step in the country's most ambitious deep space mission yet. But it's getting crowded up there around Mars. The arrival of uh, Tianwen-1 after a journey of seven months and nearly 300 million miles is part of an unusual burst of activity at Mars. A spacecraft from the United Arab Emirates swung into orbit around the red planet on Tuesday, and a U.S. rover is set to arrive next week. Landing a spacecraft on Mars is notoriously difficult. Smashed Russian and European spacecraft litter the landscape, along with a failed U.S. lander. Only the U.S. has successfully touched down on Mars eight times, in fact, beginning with two Viking missions in the 1970s. An American lander and rover are in operation today. And also, Matt Damon's there. Exactly. And he's been stuck there for years upon years. Well, no, Josh, this is your cue, man. This is like, this is the space portion of the program. Like, this is like, tell us all, you know, what you're thinking about how you just can't wait to get into the next space shuttle to, to Mars. No way. Look, I've said it before. I'll say it again. Like, whenever, I'm not trying to be a space pioneer, but I am trying to be a person who takes advantage of space, the new frontier. And so, like, when, whenever it is a regular thing that people do, I'm going to be one of the people doing it. And yeah, the idea of going to Mars, it's awesome. By the way, um, you know, I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Interstellar, but it's fantastic. And every time I think about it, I don't understand all the complexities Fake of space. news. Fake oh, news. wow. Oh, wow. Well, I don't understand all the complexities of space travel and how sometimes if you get too close to a large planet, it makes you older faster. But <laughs> all of that stuff is fascinating to me. 
And I really look forward to being, you know, out there zooming around the universe, but hopefully not like lost in space and, you know, free floating forever. That's right. Well, no doubt you saw the inspiration for a Super Bowl commercial, which is going to be an all civilian flight to space. I I expect you to be on that, Josh. Uh Uh-huh. So we'll, we'll get to Super Bowl commercials in a bit. All right, from SBC Life, Baptist Press uh, has some great news from the International Mission Board. Their trustees unanimously approve the appointment of 30 full-time, fully funded missionary personnel during their February 3rd through 4th meeting, and trustees applauded a report that cumulative international missions offerings have nearly reached a historic mark of $5 billion dollars. IMB's president, Paul Chitwood, noted that the $5 billion mark is projected to be surpassed in March. And I highlight this because, A, it's always good to highlight uh, our missionaries when they are sent on the field, but also just the incredible generosity of Southern Baptists uh, reaching this impressive total uh, to help equip and fund missions. And it's just a good reminder that even when the world stops, the Lord doesn't. (laughs) He's still at work, and we are hitting this $5 billion mark, which is incredible, so that the nations can have the opportunity to respond to the revelation of who Christ is. Amen. Amen. That's so good. $5 billion for missions. That's why the SBC exists. Absolutely. All right, finally, turning to sports. Last Sunday, Tampa Bay dominated the Kansas City Chiefs 31-9 to to easily win Super Bowl 55. Tom Brady, who is 43 years old, was named the Super Bowl MVP, making him the oldest player to ever win the award after what was, by all accounts, a phenomenal game, making one fan, one lucky fan in Tallahassee, Florida, Dean and Sarah, a very happy man. The Bucks celebrated in a very 2020 way this week, a boat parade. From the Tampa Bay Times, it reports that uh, after noting that the weather for the celebration was 83 degrees and sunny for the boat parade, which makes me <laughs> incredibly jealous, uh, they, they write, it was all that plus thousands of adoring football fans and the gleaming Vince Lombardi trophy on Wednesday as the Tampa Bay Buccaneers celebrated their Super Bowl 55 victory with a boat parade on the Hillsborough River. Sure, Tom Brady has won a few Super Bowls, but sitting at the controls of his custom 40-foot Vida a Vida, just call it, I love this, the goat boat. $2 million, by the way. $2 million (laughs) boat. In the perfect Florida sunshine with the sun on his lap, must have beat doing this in icy Boston where he won his previous six Super Bowl championships. And I would just leave it with that note for here, uh, that Tom Brady now has won more championships than any other NFL franchise. That is incredible. He is an NFL franchise. He is an NFL franchise. That's so good. So first of all, I just want to say it is a shame that Julie's not here this week because, man, sad trombone for uh, the Chiefs because what an absolute (laughs) beatdown. Oh, man. And I I called it for them as well. I thought that Patrick Mahomes was ascendant and unstoppable. And, well, that wasn't the case. Also, Lindsay, why did you ever leave Florida? That's what most people say up here. Why would you leave Florida? Because 83 degrees is like on the cool side. (laughs) So it's not as pleasant when it's 100 and something with 100% humidity. Brent would love it, but not me. That's fair. Yes. Mr. Mr. Christmas would love that Florida sunshine. Well, I'm just... I'm just saying we would all love it right now, considering it's like icing outside our windows here in yes, Middle Tennessee. All right. Well, with uh, the Super Bowl concluding, it officially means baseball season is here. That's right. America's pastime is back. Pitchers and catchers report next week. College baseball is starting up very soon. It's truly about to be the most wonderful time of the year. And baseball actually made news this week. Uh, CBS Sports is reporting that Major League Baseball is planning small changes 
to the actual baseball in an effort to reduce the wild year-to-year fluctuations in the home run rate that we are seeing in Major League Baseball. So for example, in 2019, Major League Baseball teams swatted a record-smashing 6,776 home runs. That is 2,600 more than they hit just five years previously in 2014. So ideally, baseball is aiming uh, that any changes to the baseball would bring home runs back to the uh, 2016 to 2018 levels. When there were a lot of home runs, it just wasn't so ubiquitous in every game. The new changes will reduce the overall weight of each baseball and hopefully reduce the, quote, bounciness of the balls. I don't think Josh is going to share this in his lunchroom, but... There is this video of this man from some, where is he from? I don't know, Josh. Yeah, uh, I couldn't quite figure it out. Another country talking about baseball, and it is hilarious because I'm not sure that he would agree with you that it's the best time of the year. <laughs> He's like, what? I understand these other sports, but baseball, it's like this, you, you put these people in these you put people way out in the field and, and you've got some grass, you've got some dirt, you put some pillows down and you run around the pillows and then you have this stick man and, and you have this this other man making these weird faces, throwing the ball at the stick man and then he hits it and it's and just so perfect. sometimes they steal the pillows. Like, oh, sometimes so they funny. steal the pillows. Yeah, you should go watch it. We'll have to include the link because baseball can be a bit confusing for those who weren't raised on it. Lindsay, I'm really glad you brought that up because it was, in addition to Cat Lawyer, uh, it was just a highlight from the week. Listen, if I ever get 15 minutes of viral fame, I hope it's because of something like the Cat Lawyer because that video is excellent. And what is even more excellent is how nobody on the video was laughing. I would have been losing my mind with laughter. (laughs) Well, the other attorney just kind of sits back for most of the video. And then towards oh, the very smirks. end, he just, after the, I am not a cat, I'm here, I'm not a cat, <laughs> he just, he just cracks up. And how could oh, you not? Oh, so funny. I've so seen that funny. video so many times and I can't stop watching it. Well, what's amazing about that is it's been viewed over 30 million times, uh, which is just amazing. And I agree. Just when you think, you know what, I'm out on the internet, it pulls you back in with just little moments like that. So, all right. Well, Lindsay, it's great to have you back. Josh, that's your look at This Week in Culture. So now we're about to talk to our close friend, Devin Maddox. Devin works at B&H, which is a part of Lifeway. He is the trade book publisher there, which means uh, that he oversees the production of all kinds of Christian resources. And so we're really excited to talk to Devin today, both about his work at Lifeway and about his scholarship on Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And we are really looking forward to this conversation. Well, Devin, thanks so much uh, for taking the time to join us and talk to us today. We're excited about uh, this interview, but as we're getting started, would you just tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do? And while you're at it, would you tell us one thing that God is teaching you in this season of your life? Yeah, thanks, Josh and and crew for having me. Uh, My name is Devin Maddox. I am the director of the books ministry area at Lifeway, which, which means that I work with all the teams at Lifeway that publish and sell books. And so uh, the the kind of antiquated term for what I do is uh, that I love that I love to use is I'm a bookman, which is a word we don't use anymore. But that kind of captures all the random book stuff I do at Lifeway. Um, and it's been a really interesting season to to be in the ministry of books because God has been teaching all of us a lot through this COVID season, but particularly as it relates to the issue of trying to control uh, things in the world. Uh, Stability is is what we're always looking for in the publishing industry. And man, we have had a major shortage of of stability over the last year or so. So I really think what God is trying to emphasize to me personally is just, I'm a creature and not a creator. And there's a really good passage from one of Dietrich Bonhoeffer's books called Creation and Fall. It's a commentary on um, the first three chapters of Genesis. And Bonhoeffer talks about original sin as being a denial of our creatureliness. And man, that that's a lesson I just feel like uh, the Lord has been driving home to me, that he's glorified when I embrace my limits, when I relinquish trying to control, and I uh, submit to him 
as my creator. And it's such an important lesson to remember, even when we're on the backside of the pandemic, because it's, you know, when everything's going along fine and dandy, then we forget that, right? We try to reverse that we are the potter and he is the clay. And that is definitely not the way that it is. So thanks for sharing that, Devin. So you know that this podcast focuses on Christians and culture. Can you tell us what you and those around you are paying attention to in culture right now? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, the the book world is a part of our mass media um, ecosystem. Now, granted, we're like the slowest, <laughs> we're the most slow moving part of uh, the media, but we are definitely a part of that kind of information and attention economy. And so one of the things that, that we're really thinking about at Lifeway and B&H is how, how do we speak to people uh, broadly when they're so polarized uh, between one another, when they're so fragmented? How can we uh, provide a helpful uh, message that is going to resonate widely, that's going to unify people when we're kind of programmed right now as a society to divide ourselves up into these subgroups and these uh, little niche areas and camps and tribes. Uh, That's what I spend a lot of my time thinking about. I know that's also the case in the space that ERLC moves with uh, politics, but we don't think about how seldom it is the case that we could even say uh, that we watch the same uh, TV show last night. Chances are we consumed some sort of mass media that was very singular, very tailored to suit a specific need. And that's, of course, the case with books. So few times can you uh, meet a stranger and say, hey, have you read fill in the blank and uh, get an affirmative answer? And I think that's something that our culture is really missing. I think when I Love Lucy was on television, I've heard you know Senator Ben Sass talk about this. It was a unifying and helpful thing in our society to be able to say, do you remember what happened with I Love Lucy last night? And so uh, we want to help kind of regain some of that ground in our culture to try to give some people some common ground uh, so that the church can have meaningful conversations that help lead us forward. So, Bookman Devin, (laughs) Uh, publishing books is not something that our audience probably knows a ton about. Could you tell us a little bit, give us a, a little peek behind uh, your work and how you all decide what books Lifeway is going to publish? That's a really good question. It's one that that publishers, especially Christian publishers, have to reformulate again and again and again, because what we're going to publish uh, shifts and reacts to what's going on in the church and what's going on in culture. You know, B&H, the imprint that I that I lead, is a distinctly Christian publisher, which means that there is a lot of content that we would say no to. We are also B&H and Lifeway. We are uh, held in trust by a denomination, a network of churches called the Southern Baptist Convention. The Southern Baptist Convention has a statement of faith, the Baptist Faith and Message 2000, that provides a confessional framework for us to look at content through as well. So there's also a lot of proposals that we would choose not to publish on the grounds that it doesn't align with our um, our theological or doctrinal uh, guardrails. So if, if you filter all of the book proposals in the world through that grid, what we're left with is kind of the sandbox that my acquisition editors, the men and women on my team, who review book proposals, that's where they spend all of their time. That's where we make all of our consideration. And so we, we look at it in, in two different ways. There's two different things, primary things that we're thinking about in that sandbox. One is, what do we think God is doing in his church this year? So we really are prayerful about, we really do believe God is involved in our work. That's another thing that sets our team apart is we're a team of believers that really thinks God cares with ideas, that he really does accomplish transformative work through books. So we're asking that question. But we also are held accountable to uh, issues of strategy because we trade books for, uh, for money in the marketplace. If 
if we think, for example, that, that we are providing a really helpful uh, tool to pastors and church leaders and spiritual difference makers, but we don't have anybody that wants to give their money for that, that resource or that tool, then we are held accountable immediately that, that actually we were wrong, that our judgment was off somewhere. And so we incorporate that feedback too. But Lifeway is a, is a nonprofit ministry. So we're not here to, to get rich or to build some sort of kingdom for ourselves. We're really trying to see, one, where is God moving? And two, where is our audience telling us where their needs are and trying to meet those needs? So Devin, you mentioned the two things that you're trying to think through, and it brings up, you know, what are Christians interested in and what do they need to know? And you mentioned praying about where you feel like y'all feel like God is at work and then looking at the sales of books and thinking about how maybe you got it wrong. So how do you go back and recalibrate and really balance what Christians are interested in, and also what they need to know? That's a really good question. And it's one that we're wrestling with all the time. Because the analogy that I would use was like my kids, they want, uh, they want candy at every meal. But it would not be good just because they want it doesn't mean that it is what is best for them in the long term. And I think that in, in publishing, specifically book publishing, it is such a long range endeavor that it really does matter that we not just think about the short term, because if you live kind of hot new release to hot new release, you will lose in business really fast. Um, because most of the time, a book launch does not succeed with meteoric type success. In fact, uh, it's it's much more similar to like the insurance business is most most books are not bestsellers, and publishers are taking that into consideration when they make a budget every year. They expect that most of the time uh, that that's not going to be the case. And so when something is a bestseller, then that's a really good kind of surprise. And so what we have to do is we have to understand those dynamics in a savvy enough way that we can be sure that we are getting spiritual and biblical nutrition to the church at the same time that we are being receptive to the church the way that it actually is right now. We can't publish with a strategy that wishes the church were different than the way that it that it is. We have to we have to let the church participate in guiding us towards resources that they actually would say that they need right now because they are our partners in publishing. They they are the ones that provide the revenue for us to keep on publishing and we can't we can't do the work the ministry of publishing without their partnership. And that's not so much different than other kinds of denominational work where parishioners are uh, giving so that the work of ministry can go forward. Ours is just a little bit more transactional because we're working with partners like Amazon and Barnes and Noble and lifeway.com on and on. And so, you know, the way that I think about this is it's my job to ensure that we both um, provide room for the prophetically gifted authors in our midst to challenge readers. And we also try to find people that have kind of the gift of encouragement, the gift of uh, maybe being a little bit more responsive uh, to the needs of readers as well. And kind of balancing that out in, in the kinds of authors that we're publishing in a given year. But it's it's really difficult, really interesting work uh, to consider those things because it's not it's not as easy as it might seem. Okay, so Devin, in addition to your day job as a bookman, you are also a huge Braves fan. And somehow in between those those two giant roles that you play. You are also finishing uh, your your PhD uh, by writing a dissertation on Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Uh, what are some lessons that that Christians can uh, learn today uh, by looking at Bonhoeffer's life? Yeah, I I love this question. It's one I get a lot as a student of Bonhoeffer. I started reading Bonhoeffer when I was getting an ethics degree in undergrad, and just kept on all the way through uh, seminary and then the PhD. 
And I think what draws us to Bonhoeffer in the first place is we're astonished that someone would remain faithful to Christ under such pressure, even to the point of death, right? That's what inspires us about his life. But as I've studied more closely, reading his letters, reading his essays, and looking at at kind of the previous decade and a half of his life before his death, we don't see a picture of somebody who was certain about how things were going to turn out. In fact, most of the time, Bonhoeffer was very uncertain about what he should do in any given situation. In fact, the theologian Karl Barth and, and he were, were very good uh, friends and respected one another quite a lot. They collaborated, for example, on the Barman Declaration. But if you read their correspondence, you see two giants of uh, the church in, in Germany vigorously debating and disagreeing about to what extent they should push back against the Nazis in, in Germany. Uh, what resistance should look like practically was a point of really strife. In, their, in fact, they went years not speaking to one another uh, because it was such a, a, so much tension in their, their discourse. So I think that, that one of the things that Christians need to understand about what we need to understand about ourselves is that oftentimes what courage looks like and what heroism looks like in our modern context is not a kind of fake certainty, a kind of phony machoism, uh, but rather a kind of humility that embraces the fact that we're God's creatures. We're not God, um, and that that might be the starting place for real strength and uh, real courage. Devin, I want to say thanks so much for joining us. Your final comments there on Bonhoeffer were so excellent. He is, you know, for, for so many of us, he's a hero and he's someone who we have looked to both uh, for his courage and also as a, as a theologian, someone who uh, I was just talking with a friend about his book, Life Together, yesterday about the just richness of Christian community. And there's just so much that we can learn from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And then to think about the fact that in your work at Lifeway, you're serving the church all the time by helping to produce uh, helpful resources so that Christians who are living the Christian life uh, together can continue to grow as disciples of Jesus. And so, man, we're really grateful for your friendship and grateful for your work. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us today. Thank you guys for having me. It was a lot of fun. So now it's time for the lunchroom, where every week we tell you about the things that we've been talking about with one another. Lindsay, you've been out for a while, so hopefully you're bringing something good. What's on your mind? Well, uh, yeah, I'm, I've had time to scroll and all kinds of things. So uh, Brent, I see here in our trusty notes, is going to talk about the Super Bowl ads, though I had to just highlight one of them. The flat mat commercial, Matthew McConaughey, was hilarious to me the Doritos and all of that. So be sure to check that out. It was so funny. Another thing that is worth your time is um, the ability to send a virtual Valentine to patients at St. Jude. And it's really easy to do. I went through it this morning and you just pick artwork and you just a couple of clicks, you put in a message, and these children uh, who will be spending their Valentines at St. Jude uh, will receive a message from you. So I can't think of a, a better thing to do with five minutes of your time. And then finally, I just love this story that I saw circulating around the internet, and uh, Megan shared it too, but this Texas mom tackles this this quote unquote peeper who was trying to look in her daughter's window apparently on a Sunday morning. And uh, he was running away. So she runs outside and you can see it caught on the cop's dashboard cam. She just tackles him. And there is nothing like having kids that will bring out the mama bear or the papa bear. And I hope that I would totally be that mom tackling that peeper so that uh, he would not do that again. It was excellent. Yeah. I mean, I just want to shout out to that mom who could have played linebacker because the mama bear or the linebacker in her just came out in full force. And it was amazing. I sent it to my own mom and said, this, this is you, or this would be you. Mm -hmm. As it should be. Well, that was great. And I agree. Uh, kudos to that mom down in Texas. So, uh, Lindsay, you mentioned the, the flat mat commercial is, is that your favorite Super Bowl ad that you saw this year? I mean, that was my favorite one that made me giggle. Right. What, what about, what about you, Josh? Did you have a favorite Super Bowl ad? Look, I don't want to be all serious, but 
the adoption, the Toyota, mm, Toyota. Was it Toyota, yeah, oh, the Toyota yes. commercial. Oh my gosh, yes, it was so great. Good. And not to plug one more ERLC resource, but we published a piece on that, and it was man, that piece was so well done. And so, if you want to see this adoption commercial for all that it is, uh, go read that piece and watch the commercial again because it was fantastic. I also liked uh, I liked the one where uh, it featured Will Ferrell <laughs> trying to oh. trying to overtake. I think it was Norway. <laughs> <laughs> with uh, electric vehicles. It was a GM uh, ad and he ended up like in Sweden and he had sent other people and they had ended up, I don't know, Denmark. I, I, anyways, I thought that one was was pretty funny. Well, I usually like tuning into the Super Bowl and I just want two things, uh, a good game and some some good ads. Uh, this year, it obviously wasn't a second. good game. Yeah, well, obviously wasn't a good game. I would say though that actually the the ads themselves weren't at like the top quality. There were a couple of good ones, but I love this kind of a resource each year. So YouTube has created a page and put all the Super Bowl ads in one place, so you can go and check them out in case you missed any. But that's uh that's what I brought to the lunchroom this week. Josh, what about you? Yeah, I'm really glad that you guys brought kind of the levity and the good stuff because I'm just going to take a moment and tell you what's on my mind, which is this. So over the last several weeks, I've been listening to the audiobook of Jesus and John Wayne by uh, Kristen Cobez Dumay. And this is a very critical look at the history of white evangelicalism. And honestly, as a person who grew up as an evangelical member of the Southern Baptist Convention, and considers this to be a, a movement that really represents my faith. It is, it is really, it has been really, really difficult to walk through this. And the reason, and I've actually been, you know, discussing this with friends uh, as I've been listening to this audiobook. And the reason that it is so devastating to me is it's not that I think that every uh, characterization of evangelicals in the book is fair. There, there are many points that that I would, you know, take exception to. There's ways that I think it's not representative of the whole movement. There's a lot of, you know, caveats and exceptions that I would take to the book. But the but the thing is, the really awful parts of, of evangelicalism, some of the scandals that she points at, they, they are true. They did happen. And some of them are as absolutely objectively horrible as she makes them out to be. And as a person who is committed to Jesus, who knows that the gospel uh, is a message that Jesus, the Son of God, came to save sinners, seeing people who are Christian leaders do wicked things and pray upon others, using the gospel as a shield, doing these things as Christian ministers, it is disgusting, terrible, and so, so painful. And so I, I bring this up because it's the thing that's on my mind, which is to say that for so many people, and for a lot of people listening to this podcast, there are going to be Christian leaders in your life who absolutely let you down, who have moral failings, or in all kinds of ways fail to live up to what it means to be a person who represents Jesus. The thing I want to say to you is Jesus never fails. He never lets us down. He always comes through. And so if you find yourself reading this book or other books, or you even worse, find yourself with somebody who you've looked up to and, and they fail in some way, look to Jesus and be encouraged because he is faithful even when we are faithless. He always comes through and he never lets us down. And so I know that's a kind of a sour note to end things on, but honestly, as much as we try to be happy and optimistic in this podcast, we want to be honest about the things going on in the world and an honest look at what it looks like to live as Christians in a world that has fallen and broken. Well, that's going to do it for our show today. Thanks so much for listening. As always, it was great to have Lindsay back and we enjoyed talking to you in this episode. If you like the episode and want to support the podcast, please uh, consider spreading the word by sharing this episode on social media or going into your podcast app and leaving us a rating or a brief review. But for Brent and Lindsay and myself, we want to say thanks so much for listening and we will be back next week with more content.